0: Fox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. Hey, Monica, how's it going?
1: Mav, somehow, it's still finals. I feel like it was finals (laughs) the last time I was on the show, and maybe the time before that, too. Like, I don't know how we're still going, but...
0: It's not not finals for me, my grip. My grades are submitted. So, okay. Podcast time travel moment. So I know some of our listeners listen to this show and my other show, my other show, the episode that airs next week, not, or, you know, a week from when this drops, we recorded yesterday. And I was not done with finals and I was in a miserable mood, but then I finished everything. I finished all my grading and got my grades submitted last night. So I am done grading. The semester is officially over for me and I am on vacation now. So if you listen to the shows in the order they drop, it's going to seem like I went from being happy to being miserable again. And I assure you listeners, no, it was just podcast time travel. I am on, I am officially on Christmas break, but I guess you are not.
1: (laughs) No. And it's, Far away. Oh, but it's not, you know, it's I'm Christmas doing the today. thing that you should do in the middle of finals, which is procrastinate by working on something <laughs> entirely different. So we're recording not
2: one, but two podcasts today.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're recording, I guess, next week's show. So, I mean, If things go well, this is Christmas Day as this show drops, because I believe Christmas Day falls on a Monday this year. So assuming you're listening to our podcast, you know, on the day they come out, because what could be more important than that? Today is Christmas. So Merry Christmas, Monica. (laughs) And I hope you're enjoying this time off after you finished all of your horrible finals and everything.
1: Time travel where I'm not doing finals. Things are great. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: Okay, we're not doing that, but that's not what today's show is about. Today's show is actually not very Christmassy. Today's show is, you know, we've got a topic that I think is going to be interesting for the listeners. But before that, I want to introduce the guests first, because this is one of those topics that sprang from a conversation on Facebook about the guests Facebook posts. So I want to welcome to the show, Sarah Uckelman. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for being here.
2: Hi. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) I guess first, let people know what you do so people understand. You are a professor where?
2: At Durham University, which is up in the northeast of England. If uh, you aren't way up on your English geography, it's about (laughs) halfway between London and Edinburgh and sort of near Newcastle. So if any of those ring a bell, roughly up in that area is where I am.
0: I've been to two of them. I've been to Edinburgh and I've been to London. (laughs) That doesn't help me. Been to those places. Newcastle's
2: worth a visit, but I wouldn't go out of your way to to do Newcastle (laughs) over London or something like that.
0: Awesome. Well, anyway, um, what is your research primarily in? What do you work on?
2: Well, so I primarily work in formal logic. So I am in a department of philosophy, but I hesitate to call myself a philosopher except for the times when I do. And so when I'm not doing logic, I'm really interested in what kind of academic philosophy has to say about the other aspect of my life, which is as a writer, reader, reviewer, and publisher of speculative fiction. So science fiction, Mm -hmm. fantasy anything that kind of falls in that genre. So I read and write and consume and produce all of this stuff, but I'm also really interested in kind of the philosophical intersection. So like, what does philosophy of fiction have to say about these sorts of things? And what are the problems that these sorts of fictions pose for traditional philosophical analyses? So that's the sort of stuff I like to do.
0: So I just point out the last time we had a philosopher on the show, that would have been me and Monica. And we had an hour long discussion about Milf Island, I believe. I correct. Monica. Milf Manor. What was his name show? <laughs> a reality show. Yeah. So this is not about that. All right, is, I'm
2: leaving. <laughs> this is a little I different. this to work in some... <laughs> Some like Russell Wittgenstein fan fiction and that sort of stuff, but it it will be hard to live up to that.
3: To be honest,
2: I will say even the premise
1: of Milf Manor is hard to live up to within the actuality (laughs) of Milf Manor. It's a
4: bit of a letdown.
1: So I do think, you know, this conversation maybe does have the, the competitive advantage in that it's likely to live up to the promise. I'm excited.
0: Okay, so let me give a little bit of context. The way that I met Sarah was Aaron, who's a listener of the show. She mentioned on a Facebook post that Sarah had made referring to some other research that you were reading. She mentioned me and the conversation was about the concept of Mary Sue's. And this is something that I've written about. I've not published formally. I wrote in a review of the Movie the the Force Awakens, where I talked about Mary Sue's in depth with some of the criticism that was out. This is all the way back in 2015. The criticism of Ray and in the Force Awakens, and my my take on the complaint at the time, which was, well, this character is just a Mary Sue. She's good in everything. Blah 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 blah. And I tried to not so much sidestep the sexism about it, but to sort of point it out by saying. Okay, the truth is, and this was my take. Yes, Ray is a Mary Sue. Do you know who else is? Fucking Batman. Batman is a Mary Sue. The terms of which the people who were complaining about Ray did so. But then this has been an ongoing thing in um, fanfic studies, I know. Basically from before then and continues to and it crosses over the ideas of gender and sexism and the way fiction works and just like. Why does anybody even care? Like the entire like what's the question of is there, you know, what is a Mary Sue? Is it bad? Does so and so count? You know, is it even bad to, you know, so the original claim is always, well, this person's just an author insert into this world, which again, Ray pretty much is. Yes. The entire point of Force Awakens is J.J. J. Abrams saying I've enjoyed the Star Wars for my entire life. I would like to have a piece of that. And here's my character is awesome. And she's going to be in this whole new thing. So yes, that's what she is. Is that bad? Eh, I don't know. It just seems like the kind of thing people would do if they were suddenly given the keys to Star Wars all of a sudden.
1: I mean, quite frankly, James Bond is just cooler. Ian Fleming, right? Like there's a very long literary history of being like, I can do this because I made it. Like, that is how
5: agency of authorship works. (laughs) Sure. Exactly. So, honestly, take a look at any sort of
2: novel or book or anywhere, and I challenge you to find something where the author hasn't inserted something of themselves into the book. This is why we write. We write because we have things to say, usually stemming from our own personal experiences, the characters that we bond with when we write are the characters that get to do the things that we don't get to do, or get to be the people that we don't get to be, or get to meet the
5: people that we don't get to meet. So honestly,
2: the the charge of like, oh, that's just a Mary Sue. Well, as you say, find Mm -hmm. me a character who isn't. Or some book that doesn't have any character in it, that doesn't have some bit of Mm self-insertion. Why else would we write stories if we didn't want to kind of get
0: this gratification. I'd say particularly with for lack of a better term, more geeky media, but action-oriented anything, like if it's escapism, the person trying to escape is the author. So sure you're going to be doing that. But also, I mean, let's be honest, a big part of what these characters are is, hey, what can I do with cool points, right? Like that's Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker is a doofus he's an idiot in the world who just kind of stumbles into greatness you know and accomplishes things because he's the main character like so much of his life is well you know of course he can beat Jabba because he's the main character and of course he can destroy the Death Star because he's the main character and of course he's not going to be killed by Darth Vader because he's the main character he should Luke should die like 80 times throughout the course of the original trilogy. And he just doesn't because he's got plot armor.
1: So let me ask then, is there a place where we feel like there is a threshold of believability or like the amount of suspension of disbelief that you're allowed to have before things go from, this is just a main care to setting off our Mary Sue alarms that perhaps isn't related to gender. And for example, and Matt knows boobs? that I'm, Mav knows that I'm going to bring this up because Mav has met me. I'm going to argue that the biggest Mary Sue that ever lived is Vin Diesel in the Fast and Furious franchise in terms of people who just get to invent cool things that they wish that they could do, right? And arguably, that's all the reason that a lot of people make fun of those Fast and Furious movies, and that has nothing to do with gender. Because all of that has been built on this hyper masculinity of who Vin Diesel is, right? So,
0: well, it has nothing to do with feminine feminine gender. I mean, it has everything to do with gender, I would say.
1: Yes. Yes. I suppose I should have put that as Mm -hmm. misogyny, right? So, So, the question becomes at what point do the Mary Sue accusations start flying?
0: When it's a girl, basically. I mean, and I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like, part of it's. Massive sexism because, yeah, like Fast and Furious, which uh, if you've listened to the show, at least the two of us adore those movies. And I think Hannah's coming around. You know, She has like, no choice. Yeah, I, I got you, Hannah's boyfriend is a big fan as well. So like there are. I don't know what you want from this. It, these are not films that are supposed to be winning, you know, awards for deep high society art. That's not the point of the films that are being complained about Mary Sue's. So I think it matters. I mean, I think that you just enjoy stories that are about. OK, so Vin Diesel's character is the plot of Fast and Furious. three through now is so Dom kicks some ass.
5: <laughs> okay, that's
0: it, right? There's nothing more to it, right? So it's great. <laughs>
1: Like I guess I am thinking I remember as a teen very into fan fiction there used to be this thing that was called the Mary Sue test and it was essentially you had to add up the number of suspension of disbelief points that you were requiring your audience to adhere to and if there were too many points then maybe you had written a Mary Sue and you would get points for things like everyone else in the world has a normal uh, anglophone name and your character is named something like midnight or lavender right (laughs) and but it was criteria were not explicitly like gendered right at least within the confines of what i remember about this test Mm. and so that's why i'm so interested as to then why it gets co-opted to then be a policing of perhaps more so female behavior than male behavior because a lot of fantasy and speculative fiction is very anchored on this idea of there being a chosen person, which is a very primary, shame. like, Mary Sue
2: alarm, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I've got some thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with kind of, you know, what is it that the chosen one, the chosen person, is expected to do? If you look at some of the really kind of classic science fiction, fantasy, quest-type things there's a lot of weapons involved of some sort. You know, you need to be able to hunt or to track or to shoot or to fight or to fly or something like this. And these are the, you know, you might say these are just skills that the chosen one needs to have, but these are very male coded sorts of skills. And so (laughs) if you then have a woman who needs to occupy this space, well, he's going to need these skills, but, Reason that these skills are male-coded means that you have to give some sort of explanation or some sort of reason why this woman is the exception. So, you know, why is it that this, you know, you know, high fantasy medieval European-esque princess, why is it that she knows how to fight? I well, you have to have the story that her father always wanted a son and never had one. He only had this daughter. And so <laughs> he raised her as if she were a boy. And you see that sort of You know explanation given, but I think this is partly why there is so much of the kind of sexist dimension to service of being of Mary Sue. You know when this is being used in this majority way, because I'm saying even if you know the chosen one could be anybody, when you put a girl into the role that is normally boy coded, then you've got exceptionalism.
5: Mm -hmm. And I wonder,
0: I think there might be a little bit of rejection that people have of noticing that there are exceptional female characters because for so long there were so few, you know, in dominant pop culture media. Obviously, you know, I, I will... Invoke Hannah, Hannah, who couldn't be here today and point out that certainly there were, you know, going back forever. You know, Jane Austen is an author, right? And she has many female protagonists, but they're not viewed as in the same light as a Luke Skywalker. So I think what ends up happening is you have a story like, say, Harry Potter, where the entire premise of the franchise is there's this one kid who is magic and the chosen one. And will save us all like that's what Harry's point is to be. But then if you notice while you read the books, he is heavily flawed. He's kind of stupid in the beginning and bad at things. And he sort of happens into things. He doesn't really know what's going on. And who's the competent one? The competent one's Hermione. And through through especially through the early books, she, you know, Ron and Harry just rely on her to save them. Pretty much constantly. Harry can't cast the spells straight for like the first three books. So I think that, you know, that fact that, oh, well, the person who's good is a girl, not a boy. I think stuck out in some people's minds, you know, for misogyny reasons. Right. Because I I don't feel like most of the people who like Hermione, I would say there's a point in that like her character trait is that she's good at everything again. Like Batman. But I don't think that people do that with other characters who are necessarily good at everything. And I think people apply the Mary Sue label to characters, to female characters who aren't good at everything, like Katniss Everdeen, who is actually not really a mary sue at all she's almost she's indiana jones she's almost inconsequential to her entire narrative right like she she is she happens through that world and the plot happens around her so i don't think she's a mary sue at all but she's called that all the time and she's deeply flawed
1: so then are you saying that a mary sue has to be good at things is that Um, something that would end up on your mary sue test
0: no, well, I think that would be a more interesting test, but I also think that the concept of Mary Sue is stupid. I think there are just characters who are flawed and there are characters who are awesome and I actually don't care much for the overly awesome character. Okay, so again, I'm editing a collection, an academic collection right now about essays about people who are around Batman because Batman himself I find stupid. Right? Like I think Batman is boring because he's too good and I'd rather hear a story about you know, Damien or Tim or Stephanie or, or Oracle. Like I'd rather hear about any of the flawed people around Bruce than listen to a story about Bruce himself until the Tom King era, because I don't want my Batman to be perfect. So for me, that's the distinction, but I think for most people, even if they don't want to admit it, the distinction is this one's a boy and this one's a girl.
5: I feel like there's gotta be more to it that. But we brought an expert.
4: Right, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs>
5: well,
2: so w- what particularly interested me in you know this article that you know, st- sprung up this Facebook post, it's something from the California Law Review. So it's by two lawyers. Uh, that was interesting. Looking <laughs> at, oh, yeah. This was not where I expected to find a discussion of Mary Sue's and kind of their you. So part of the article, and I'll send you the link so that you can share the details with the listeners, kind of the whole, you, know, you know copyright and things. And I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to kind of engage with any of that. But the part that I found particularly interesting was that they're arguing for a really positive view about the use of Mary Sue's as methods of cultural destabilization is the phrase that they mm-hmm. use. This idea, so you know, and it's not just about you know women, but as they say, literature, media, life and stereotype. And here I quote from the article: Certain groups, such as women, gays, and racial minorities, and where popular media might show such groups as lacking agency or exhibiting other negative characteristics, merrows are powerful, beautiful, trippy. and
5: it's this kind of positive spin to them that
2: part of why people will use oh that's just a Mary Sue in this pejorative way is because Mary Sue characters actually can be really powerful in a destabilizing hmm. and unsettling way. If you are not one of these minoritized groups and you get one of these characters come along, then all of a sudden you have to rethink your approach to like how does the Star Wars universe work? We thought it was just a whole bunch of men, but oh, wait, could actually be women come along with agency and knowledge and skills and experience Mm. and background and quick minds and all things. So I find that really particularly interesting, this idea that there isn't necessarily anything wrong in these characters kind of in and of themselves, but it's the people who feel threatened by them that then kind of react in this negative way, as opposed to... Mm. So another thing really interesting in the article is they point out that um, when you don't get to see examples of yourself, whatever uh, kind of dimension of your person or characteristics you might be thinking of, when you don't see representations of yourself in media, and then all of a sudden kind of you come along and you get the brilliance, woman, the you know, the skills, you know, non-white character, you know, whatever you want. That so again from this article, we suggest it said that relentlessly positive portrayals of people who look like you may lead one to people thinking that people who look like you are capable and desirable, and two, believing in your own capability and self worth. Fighting popular culture via these Mary Sue's, a to step towards breaking the cyclical reproduction of dominance. This is partly why I find Mary Sue so fascinating because it, this view of them really turns them into something so so powerful, and not just oh, here is this perfect little character that can do everything. You know, maybe flawed, maybe not.
5: So you're, you're really reminding me of the discussion
1: that happens around like magical girls or. Also, like manic pixie dream girls, as Mm. being this place where misogyny does come into play about essentially saying that these are women who cannot exist because there is a projection of fantasy on them. But also the fact that then there becomes sometimes this the magical girl is also a huge point of identification for femme lesbians, for drag queens, for. For other folks within the queer community who see this figure, who everyone else is taking as this symbol of potentially projected misogyny, as then actually being a space for empowerment and self expression that is closer to how they themselves would like to see themselves portrayed within popular media. So, this is something that I think hearing hearing you say this, that it is potentially more than just the representative IP grab that it is to, like, include diversity representation within popular media. But this idea that, like, seeing these folks as being powerful and capable and not the Black character who gets killed first in the horror movie is potentially a very empowering moment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the phenomena that you described is exactly the same sort of parallel that, you know, again, it's not the characters themselves that are kind of problematic or non-problematic, kind of where they get put and how they get used and who gets to view them. And so viewed as this, this kind of idealized male projection, you know, the manic pixie girlfriend, yeah, the, it is problematic. When you think about kind of what does it say about these men's relationships with women? But then when you cast it into this other framework, when you can kind of take it outside of this relentlessly patriarchal, heterosexual sort of lens, then it's like there's so
5: much that, I mean, the man Manic Pixie Girlfriend is not a typical woman. And so it just gives mm. kind of other people the opportunity.
2: It was like, oh, oh, that is another vision of what I could be like. You know, that that's a thing. It's a possibility. It separated out from all of the whole, is this you? Know, some sort of man's idealization. Strip all of that away, it's just another possibility.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Now this is honestly giving me, it's
1: giving me sucker punch, right? Like, this <laughs> idea of, are we going to let this narrative be reduced to what other people are telling? Like, Are saying that people should behave like, or is it more important for there to be the possibility for negotiated readings? Because Sucker Punch Hmm. is also one in which we're talking about, like, the reason there was so much pushback was that people were like, we don't want to see girls with swords. <laughs> but you know what? We had a whole episode about how I was like, I really do want to see a girl with a sword. And I, I was going to
2: say, was out there saying, we don't want to see girls with swords. Yeah. I have a whole list of friends. Who would I think, think Sucker
3: Punch and suffered.
2: I,
0: yeah, we talked about this on the episode. I think Sucker Punch suffered a lot from the confusion of who gets to tell this story, right? Like there were complaints that, you know, oh, this is just woke garbage. and they, they wouldn't have said woke at the time. They would have said SJW garbage, right? But then there were also complaints that this is misogynistic because at that point in his career, Zack Snyder was very much a man without a country. Like he was a person trying to tell he was a person whose visual aesthetics Sort of implied that he should be for one for one particular fandom community. But his his personal ideals kind of put him in another fan community. So he didn't belong anywhere. Now, in the present, you have Zack Snyder being very much adopted very much by the dude bro community who doesn't understand his movies at all. Right. Like, like even the stuff that Zack Snyder is trying to say in a justice league or in a Batman versus Superman is not as. Aggro as I think his fan base would like it to be like, he's actually trying to do something different, whether he succeeds or not. Um, so I think he's a confusing case, but I think what ultimately It does come down to is the there's like a simplicity of, well, why should we be talking about this weird, you know, lesbian, teen girl power fantasy from this middle aged white man? Why should we be listening is kind of I I think one thing that gets laid on him that maybe isn't fair, you know, like he's allowed to have a view he's allowed to feel something. And, and, and know, it's also did.
1: like if you're gonna yeah. argue that your author shouldn't put too much of themselves into the movie, and Certainly then you didn't. have Zack Snyder <laughs> <and> make sacrifice, <sucker laughs> you're like, well, which one did you want? Because now we have the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And you're right. still calling both of yeah.
4: Mary <laughs> Sue's.
0: It's I mean I think what it that's why I think what it really comes down to is it's a female character we don't like, is what it ultimately gets. Now I do think that there's so there's the Mary Sue website, which I think obviously is an attempt to sort of reclaim that label. But I think in some respect, like that ends up being generically feminist character. Good, you know, is, and again, I'm not saying I'm not complaining about feminist characters. Obviously I'm saying that it's reductive in both directions, right? It would be reductive to say, all girl power characters are good and all girl power characters are bad. And I, so I, I, I do think that I think the complaint usually comes down to oversimplification. Like if you ask me for the things that I like or do not like about any given movie, I can give you a list, any given movie, any given story. I have a whole career that is based upon doing this. We have this show. We have literally my job. How do we close read something? Right? Like, so I'm not saying that can't be done. I'm saying, I think most of the time people aren't when they're using that shorthand.
2: If I can kind of bring in some of my philosophical research, and the reason why I came across Please. this particularly interesting paper in the first place is working on paper where I argued that fiction writing, so the process of actually sitting down and writing stories, generally speculative fiction, because that's what I experience with, that this is itself a genuine and novel philosophical methodology. And that this is a way that we can use to kind of explore philosophical questions and come to novel ideas and answers to the, I mean, more than just being the fiction, but the process of writing it. And I like to draw kind of comparisons between the way that stories built and structured and the way that philosophy journal articles get built and structured. It's all centering around this kind of notion of argument. And the reason that I needed To say something in this paper about Mary Sue's is because what I wanted to argue is that it's not necessarily, again, about the character, but it's how they are used and where they get placed and how they are introduced. Because if you are writing your philosophical paper, and as soon as you encounter an objection, you pull some whisper out of your hat and say, oh, look, I'm going to invoke David Lewis's possible worlds theory as my response to this objection, people are going to go like, wait a minute, where did this come from? But if I have started mm-hmm. my paper saying, you know, against the backdrop of this particular metaphysical view, then by the time that I need to appeal to possible worlds, it's already kind of expected because I've set the story up in the right way. You can get the same thing, I think, with Mary Sue's. That, uh, it's, okay, it's not about the character itself being climatic, but how do we fit it into the story, and this is going to be, like, who is telling the story and what kind of story it is, and you know, is it kind of internally consistent, is it kind of externally <clears throat> consistent? So all of these things are kind of, as you say, ways in which we can bring the nuance back, and you know, go on beyond just you know, Mary Sue good, Mary Sue bad, that <laughs> Really, there's a lot more to it than this.
1: So we've definitely brought up that the speculative is capable of helping us work through things is a great tool for problem solving. One of the things that I study to throw my cards on the table is speculative design when it comes to fashion and garment and textiles and materials and the ways in which our projections about what utopias look like are going to help us figure out how to design our futures, right? And there's lots of research that is this idea of the more we think through the what-ifs, the more we are actually scientifically able to come up with concrete ways to implement those what-ifs into reality. But then also sometimes the speculative, when you talk about something that is like an impossible future, is also still serving a purpose because it can be catharsis for, for a group of people that can't, have that speculative future but want to think about what it might be like right and that's something that we sort of run into with the the intersection of things like afrofuturism and and philosophy of um of these what ifs of the impossible possibilities and so i wonder we are obviously working through this speculative of like what if um minorities were allowed to be awesome Um, And are celebrated for their awesomeness. But what else are we able to. Like gain.
5: Or able to create or able to produce. From Mary Suits. What problem did they solve?
2: I was just going to say. The one major thing that they solve. Is people like me. Doing things Mm -hmm. I want to do know the representation and yeah it might not be the best kind of representation because it has itself open, open to the more pejorative charges but the more that we the more that we see this kind of representation the more normalized it get and then the harder it becomes to say oh or this one special character that has all of the relevant properties and can do everything well and has all of the education and training that she needs it wouldn't it if you see loads and loads of these, they stop becoming noteworthy. Just, become very, and then it's just ordinary that when minorities, whatever, can go out and do cool things.
5: What do not I mean,
0: I don't think it's unnatural. I think it is ordinary, and I mean that in a good way, right? Like so I'm thinking back where uh, as a kid, I became very invested in this game called the Marvel Superheroes role-playing game. And also Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, other in ro- other role playing games. I played Shadowrun a lot. I played Vampire the Masquerade. These are games that like sort of I got into as a preteen and a teenager that got me into role playing and later into writing and drawing comics. And the big appeal of and I will use the Marvel superheroes game. The big appeal of the Marvel superheroes game is it gave you a. Template where you could make a superhero of yourself and you could be running around the Marvel universe with the X Men and the Avengers and Spider Man and whoever, right? Because that's the dream, right? Like they're like they give you role playing scenarios that you can play out where you can go, yeah, but you know what would make Secret Wars cooler if I was there? That's what would make it cooler, right? Like it's just uh, I want to be there hanging out with Spider Man. And then the same thing happens with, say, Dungeons and Dragons or any other role playing game, Do you know, what would make like the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings cooler if I was there? Like, yeah, that's kind of the point, right? Like, that's why these RPGs became insanely popular. And then if you want to move outside of RPGs, let's let's look at live action role play and I'm not going to go where people would think I would go with that where you know you'd assume like like you know things like SCA I'm saying what about Civil War reenactments <laughs> Civil War reenactments are literally role playing where you're going you know what would make the Civil War cooler if I was there so like that's kind of inherently a Mary Sue activity the thing is where people call it out is you know well, what happens if if I can't relate to your character because they're too woke and I'm not right like that's I think that's often the criticism which is you know the criticism is if I find myself unable to relate to something where I expect that I should be able to relate all the time because usually I can, then maybe I don't like something as much
1: now I'm actually incredibly interested in this <laughs> idea of turning civil war reenactments into Mary Sues because. Quite frankly, when we talk about the self-fashioning of how people get dressed up, like so often, like people do not choose. Like, you know, what would make it really cool? Like, if I was there, but also like, I was cold and starving, and my clothes were <laughs> kind of ratty, and like, no, you picked the Where? coolest goddamn outfit that you are gonna wear to the like to the encampment. No, nobody
3: gonna, goes to a lot act, of but in the looking like
2: the- Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot
1: of, like, policing of being like, oh, you didn't actually make that by hand, or, like, oh, like, you you chose, like, the wrong fabric for that period. Like, there is something about, like, we, this is the best dress Civil War, like, that the Civil War had ever Mm -hmm. seen, because the Civil War never looked like this. Yeah.
0: No one goes to these things and says, hey... In today's event, in today's event, we're going to everyone's going to have you know consumption, headlights. and then I'm going to yeah, everyone you know, has you know, headlights. And, I'm, and today, <laughs> I'm getting, it's getting it's the so
2: leeches. You know, <laughs> yep. If you go to any of these reenactment things, you're always going to see reenactments of middle and upper classes. No one turns up and says, "I'm the leper," you know, "I'm yes. the you know <laughs> the one who's got scrofula." I'm the person stuck in the corner with dysentery. None of these things are. So this idea of you know, these historical reenactments, giving kind of self-expression and embodiments to Mary Seuss, I think, is absolute spot because it is exactly. It's not just, well, what would make the Civil War cooler if I were there. It's what would make the Civil War cooler if I were there and I was in charge.
1: Hmm. Ah, so then potentially we should be having discussions. I think, Mav, you brought up, it's the who tells the story. We should be having Mm -hmm. discussions of power, right? One, in the fact that there is like, this is very much a challenging of power structure, right? And especially when you talk about reenactment, you talk about all of these, when you talk about discussions of authenticity, then you have to talk about discussions of money or you have to talk about discussions of. People who had the time to actually source all of the authentic antiques themselves, right? Something about a Mary Sue, something about writing, something about fan fiction is ultimately, like, then we get to those discussions of, like, YouTube and that anyone can be the author, right? But even within YouTube, then we have a hierarchy of eventually the content creators come, like, rise to the top. And so there is sort of this, like, everyone can and should be a Mary Sue. But the reason that some people are called Mary Susan, not others, is not just patriarchy, but also all of the other inherent power structures at play.
0: Yeah, I think that the term originates from a criticizing women and hence the gender nature of the term. But I do not think it is limited towards criticism of women. In a patriarchal sense, I think it is literally criticism of the other when the other dares to have a story to call its own. Ew, that's
5: like all this,
4: I've
2: got for this that. Idea. <laughs> yeah, this idea that you know the other potentially has this story that is theirs and is not the original, is reshaping the original. This is exactly the sort of thing that is destabilizing as the authors of this article say. So they have two really interesting kind of examples of this. One's, you know, that they're interested in from, like, legal copyright points of view, but one is a retelling of Gone with the Wind from the point of view of the enslaved people. So it's the wind done, gone. And eventually, I guess there was mm. a lawsuit of this and was positive for the derived story, that it was you know, the way in which it. Used original and adapted it was sufficient to make it not you know, copyright infringement. And then the other example that they gave this was something that I hadn't known about is Harry Potter in Kolkata. So it's a hmm. Bengali story which brings Harry Potter over to India and then introduces him to all of the kind of traditional characters of uh, Indian and uh, mythology and literature. So this was, again, you know. Rowling issued a cease and desist letter and it got pulled from publication. This way of you kind of taking these enormously powerful cultural forces and then say, oh, oh, I'll take that and I'll bring it into my own culture and I will make it mine. So I'm not just Mm -hmm. kind of reading somebody else's story. This is now my story and I'm going to use these other characters to tell my story it's a it's a hugely powerful and you know therefore threatening sort of activity
5: mm-hmm. reminding me and, and yes. where we talk about like things that are authorized but there's actually
1: a book about mammy authorized by the margaret mitchell estate it's supposed to mm-hmm. be like the biography the story of Gone with the Wind from the perspective of Mammy, And so, this idea of who. This is also the alternative, like reading, but it is the authorized alternative reading because it comes from the estate. I mm-hmm. have not read that. Like,
0: it's just, yeah, yeah, it's literally someone who is lucky enough to have inherited from her, right? So,
1: yeah. So, from the estate means they, they have the approval of the people who hold the copyright and the money and the powers that that be. Hmm. I have not read this book. I cannot tell you the difference in tone, though there is a part of me that really has to imagine that the wind on gone and this other one, which is called Roots Journey, one of them is gonna be inherently more racist than the other, right? Like that's just <laughs> because Gone with the Wind is an inherently racist book. We're just gonna get that out of the way. Uh or when we talk about something like Margaret Atwood has also like Rewritten Greek mythology, right? Mm. That there is this what is going to count as the authorized or unauthorized retelling of something that could then fall into these Mary Sue categories. That I think is also a very interesting story because then you are talking about things like world building, you are talking about the expansion of the universe and how it might fit or not fit within our expectations of an already built world, which is why something like A house of dragon can be so interesting or star Wars. It's anytime you introduce something that has that existent IP is then not only being thrown into a lens of being analyzed under what we would expect cultural behaviors to be, but what we would expect behaviors to be also within an imaginary world. And perhaps that's why that's so interesting to me because it's like, it's an imaginary world. You've already given me the suspension of disbelief. Like, who the fuck cares? (laughs) Like, you can kind of behave however you want at that point. But I think if I'm hearing you correctly, that's sort of the larger crux of your project, is why did these rules feel so important or
5: withheld within these imaginary built story worlds, right? Yeah, it's
2: particularly interesting. You would think, you know, speculative fiction, imagination anything is possible. You can do whatever you want. And yet, once you start trying, there's all of these rules that, I mean, kind of external, but also internal rules that you need to follow in order to come up with something not just believable or, you know, doesn't require too much willing suspension of disbelief, but just to be something that is going to draw people in and help them to kind of give a space for them to see like where they would fit in this world or how the world works Mm -hmm. compared to our world and things like that. So Mm -hmm. because it's related to the other kind of criticisms that you get of fan fiction, which is like, why don't you just make up your own characters? Why are you taking somebody else's characters, inserting Mary Sue's and things like that. But it partly comes down to what is the, that kind of (laughs) gut, Whole of the worlds that are being created. As the authors of this article say, there is only one Superman. Parodic social mm-hmm. commentary gathers its unique power because of its use of cultural icons. So having this, you know, having something where everybody already knows what the rules are, you know, again, it affords people a lot of power in the stories that they tell. If you tell the same story, it, like Harry Potter in Kolkata, If it had been just some other random Western European magic Mm -hmm. boy who came to India, it would not have anywhere near the same sort of cultural significance as it would. It's like, it's Harry Potter who is coming and finding out all about Bengali history and myth and literature and things like that. So it it does come, this idea of the rules that stories have to follow and the rules that people know they're following all these things are they're all linked together
0: right there's a there's this weird thing with adaptation theory and this first off you have to like sort of realize that very few ideas are original right like is Harry Potter original no like literally if you want to read the academic discourse around you know how much of Harry Potter was quote unquote stolen I you know and which I think is Unfair to Rowling, who I don't really care to be all that fair to. It is certainly inspired by a lot of classic myth. She would say that. But it's also a fairly generic, you know, generic loser becomes the chosen one style story. That's the point of it, right? So it's not original to begin with. And then to the point that you're making, sure, we could do an original story. But a very valid thing that people do is let me give my take on X in order to say why, right? Like, like there is a lot of okay. I'm going to take my swing at Little Red Riding Hood. Okay, I'm going to take my swing at Hercules. Okay, I'm going to take my swing at you know whatever. I mean, even Star Wars. Star Wars is. In the words of the creator, in the words of George Lucas, Star Wars is his attempt to steal from Kurosawa. Like that's what he was doing and to create a instantiation of Joseph Campbell's monomyth. Right. Like he was not doing original concept. So sometimes you want to tell a story by saying, let me do my Superman or let me do my Harry Potter or, or whatever. Right. So. So I. Find it really weird where people get precious of it, because what it seems like you're doing when you're like, well, why don't you do why don't you do your own original character? I understand the point you're making, but the answer to that is because I don't want to. And if you've seriously got a problem with that, then maybe the issue is that you want to be able to ignore my story. Right. Like like why? Why does Miles Morales have to be Spider-Man? Can't he just be some other character? Well, he could, but then you'd ignore him. Like you, there are certainly other black superheroes. You don't pay attention to them. You're only paying attention to the one who disrupts your idea of what Spider-Man must be purely by existing.
2: Yeah, and I think it's particularly interesting that you know lots of these kind of concerns about fan fiction more broadly about you know well, copyright infringement and. Why don't you just, you know, make up your own characters about plagiarizing others and, you know, their use and intellectual property and all of these things. It's just so incredibly modern because
3: mm-hmm.
2: until you have a notion of copyright and a notion of ownership, these issues don't even rise. Look at, you know, classic, you know, pre-modern literature and what are you going to find You're gonna find all sorts of fan fiction, which we now teach Mm -hmm. in undergraduate literature classes as being like the pinnacle of of, intellectual culture and history in Western Europe. Paradise Lost is Bible fan fiction. What Mm -hmm. is the Inferno? This is Dante self-insert into kind of theological commentary. There is, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: it is so obvious that you cannot disagree with this. And this because these authors were working in a context and a where like ownership of words or ideas just wasn't really a thing, so I do a lot of work, my logical research, a lot of it is focused on developments between the twelfth and thirteenth and fourteenth centuries, so high middle ages and it's so interesting reading academic textbooks from this period because. There is no bibliography. There is no citations. There is no attribution of of words to people. None of these things. If if a student turned in something like this to one of my classes, they'd get pulled up on plagiarism charges. Plagiarism requires us to believe that these things can be by people and have to be kind of used with permission or used with attribution. And when you're working in a context that just doesn't have this idea of ownership, then all of these questions fall away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I recently got into an argument with someone online who made a statement to the effect of the Calvin peeing on stuff meme, you know, that is you know, the thing that goes on mud flaps, right? well that's illegal because bill watterson says it is and i was like well i mean yes technically it's illegal in the way that like but it's also defended as parody in the way that like all versions of this would be and then people got into an argument about like well well it's different though because watterson says it's different i'm like no it's different because watterson says it's different and you respect watterson right like the idea of ip ownership I like they were trying to define a difference between what they considered, you know, acceptable parody and not. And I was like, this is a concept that only exists because you want to monetize intellectual property. I understand the value of monetizing intellectual property because I live in a capitalist society. I don't necessarily want to, but I do. And therefore, my ideas need to have value because I like to eat. Like that's but that's but the concept of ownership, the one that I usually teach when I'm doing this is I teach Romeo and Juliet a lot because kids will often say, well, they don't like this version of Romeo and Juliet because this is just a play on Romeo and Juliet. And this is, you know, a copy and, you know, it's like, yeah, but Romeo and Juliet, the thing that you think of is the original Shakespeare's version is actually him directly adapting a poem called The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet. And by Arthur Brooks which was an, in turn an adaptation of a work which was in turn an adaptation of a work Shakespeare didn't invent those characters and no one in his time thought he did he was essentially doing an MCU adaptation like that's what now it's the I one mean, that we remember and treat like it's magical But like a lot, of his,
1: like, books, or yes, a lot yes. of his plays are and I think my favorite part of Romeo and Juliet is that it's Also, if you go back far enough, just Pyramus and Thisbe. And Pyramus and Thisbe is literally the play that they are all performing in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, the dude is not trying to hide that he is ripping anything off. That's what they want him to do. They are literally like, hey, you know this classic fairy tale? Could you make it into a play for us? That's what they've been asked. It's like when we make a live-action Disney. No one wants Mm -hmm. it to be different. We know what it is. We'd <laughs> right. actually be upset if it yeah, was and different. It,
2: and we are. It is different. Yeah. yeah, that's what it goes wrong. <laughs> Change it too much and we're not going to like it.
0: Yeah, and Shakespeare knew he was doing that. That's why it's a weird, like the weird 21st century, not even purity, 21st century this is the way that things should be because we, the internet have decided in our high and mightiness that this is the thing that we're going to bless sort of creates these problems um, in a weird, (laughs) I mean, I know it's an academic argument, pseudo academic argument with drinking and swearing, but, (laughs) but it isn't, it is, The argument in and of itself is academic. How do you even define the concept of a Mary Sue without questioning the concept of what it is to be a protagonist? And how do you have that conversation outside of the context of what is intellectual property and what is fiction? And it's, you know, it's all just a weird argument that I think is going to boil down to I'm looking for official justification for Why I can say this thing that I don't like isn't as good as this thing that I do like.
5: Oh no, Mav, does that mean we've solved nothing?
0: (laughs) 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 I mean, I guess. I don't know. I mean, like, it's weird because I very much try to not use that term. There are many. Terms that I try not to use unless I'm going to go through the trouble of defining it. So like when I talked about Mary Sue's a bunch in the and I'll link in the show notes. Well, I will link the article that Sarah referred to though that's paywalled. It's a, you know, so you only be able to get to it if you have a university account somewhere. It's called Everyone's a Superhero, a Cultural Theory of Mary Sue Fan Fiction as Fair Use by Anupam Chander and Madhavi Sunder. So I will link those, but I also link the review I did of Force Awakens back in 2015, where I talk about my feelings on it there. And I and the struggle that I had back then is, you know, I can't, Like, all I can really do is say, I don't like this criticism because I think the thing that you're criticizing and boiling down to being a Mary Sue is dumb. But maybe you don't mean the same thing. Maybe words don't have as, you know, cohesive meaning as you maybe think they do. (laughs) I don't know. It's so weird and I don't know how to resolve it or even pretend to resolve it. Much like most, most things on this show, because I think the problem is too nebulously defined. Like when you're saying, you know, what's the problem with Mary Sue's? The answer is, well, what do you mean by Mary Sue?
2: Or another way to put it, what's the problem with Mary Sue's? It's that they're Mary Sue's.
5: <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs>
0: so, and there, I don't know. A,
1: there's something about Mary kind of. <sighs> Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> so anyway i think we'll end it there it's weird i don't have an answer for it i am really curious as to what people think in the comments this is a very odd christmas show to have but you know we've been, we've done so many christmas shows so I, I i wanted to get this scheduled here because i think it's an interesting topic so sarah thank you for doing this with us this was fun thank you for spinning nice your fun. christmas thank
3: you for having me
0: yes yeah. your christmas Morning with us because we totally recorded this live. That's a thing that we absolutely did and absolutely. didn't record it last week. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to keep up with your work, is there anywhere they can go?
2: Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter or on Blue Sky under Sarah L. Ucholman. kind of drum together. Also, if you have any interest in learning logic, you can search for Dr. Logic Awkwardly Does Logic on YouTube. I've got over 250 videos that will take you through awesome. from knowing absolutely nothing to we're working our way through my, the topics that I teach my advanced third-year class. So if you want to check that out and see, again, kind of unvarnished academics talking about things they find interesting, I really do it my love
0: we will absolutely link that in the show notes. And because I mean, we should have you on to talk about that specifically at some point. That would be awesome.
2: Oh, I would totally talk to you about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely try to book something else. Monica Marvelous, what about you?
2: Still not. a. I,
1: I want to be like, still don't, don't talk to me after finals. Don't contact me. Maybe <laughs> we need to. I guess you could do. And that's at Monica Marvelous, L-O-U-X. It was like that before the takeover. Don't support it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I I I mean, the fact that you even acknowledge it's called X. I mean, it's, so as people listen to this, it's Christmas Day. Do we want to even speculate how long X as a product, as a website, as an app will continue to exist? I don't know. You know, 2023 was the year they killed Twitter. We'll, we'll talk about that probably next week, because next week's show is... Our annual Things You Missed show, which I am very much looking forward to. It's where we talk about some of our favorite pop culture that, you know, you might not have got a chance to absorb this year. And this was a weird year because most of the year, most of Hollywood was on strike. So it kind of kind of cut down on the production output a little bit. So I'm looking forward to that show next week. But anyway, as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Blue Sky, I guess, or if you really want on Mastodon. I sometimes remember that I post there about as often as I remember that I have a LinkedIn account, which is almost never. But all the places always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show. Some of those places we're on Twitter, Blue Sky and Facebook at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. Except for we didn't this week because again it's the end of the year show and then we've got some fun stuff coming up. We've got our 300th um, episode. We've got the my favorite thing coming up, box office game is coming up soon. But if you have other ideas, you can suggest them there, and you can comment on this episode or any other. You can give us topic ideas, suggest guests, even you know ask to be on, your, on yourself. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, or Spotify, or Pandora, or wherever the hell you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out, especially if you don't just leave a rating, but if you leave a review where you write a little something about how much you love the show, that boosts the algorithm, makes us more popular, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank Sarah for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next time. Bye.